people ask me, this week especially, so what all did you do this week? And, uh, you know, there's so many things that, that a, uh, a minister does. But largely the biggest portion of it is, is in preparing for everything. So you have the message today. You had Sunday school. You got the midweek Bible study. Then, of course, there's the, uh, the project for the church. And then uh, the ever-increasing need to get the devotionals written for January of our time in prayer and fasting. Uh, and then, of course, there's the counseling calls and all those other various things. So all of it is extremely uh, busy when it comes to preparation, preparation, preparation. So I often find a lot of, uh, uh, when I go run down the road or I go dig in the dirt, I'm able to kind of relax a little and able to feed my soul with listening to sermons. And I learn a lot there from just being able to listen as opposed to reading because, you know, reading makes your eyes tired. You know, it's just after a while, it just makes your eyes tired. So it's good to be able to listen to things. But I'm learning a lot in my life right now around this issue of sanctification. And what we're seeing happen and shape up in our culture today, uh, is in, and I'm talking about regarding the church, is indeed, I believe, going back to this main issue. For whatever reason, and I think it's simply because uh, Christians are those that seem to overcorrect many times. If, 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 if our car is veering to the left, we just jerk it to the right, man. So we avoid the ditch on the left, but we'll careen the whole neighborhood on the right when we go off into it. And so back in the 20s and 30s, uh, under the liberal, what was then the, known as the liberal takeover, um, Henry Machen, I believe, and uh, our Charles, I forget, Machen is the last name, and then Harry Emerson Fosdick, as that whole split began to happen in the 20s and 30s between what would become known as fundamentalism and then liberal theology, uh, there was such an emphasis on the overcorrecting to make sure people knew how to be saved that sanctification was divorced many, in many ways. I, divorce may be a strong word. How about separated, left behind from justification? The emphasis was to get people saved. And after that, just now you're saved. Go do stuff. And so the idea of a pursuit of a holy life kind of went into the background. And that was merely relegated to the holiness movements uh, movements of Wesleyan theology and all of those things. Um, and so what happened is you have a people then that split into two groups in Christianity or Christendom. You had... Those who were fundamental in the sense that they believed in the fundamentals of Scripture, but really they could only take you as far as how to be saved. Okay, this is really big in Oklahoma. <laughs> Heard it every Sunday. And you should. Every Sunday should be an opportunity of hearing the gospel and how to be saved. But that's where they stopped. To pursue a holy life. To think about your responsibility in, in sanctification and pursuing it. Understanding your old man being dead and gone and understanding that new man being alive and, and being strengthened and being renewed day by day and how, you're, and how we are supposed to take care of how we live. Most of them were just content to say, well, I was saved back there 
in a Brush Arbor meeting in 1942, and I'm fine. Or I got saved at False Creek. I got saved. Should be a clue when you can reduce that glorious fact down to that. I got saved. I saved then. When we talk about being born again, our eyes should animate. Our, our, our spirit should exult in God. And we should immediately almost go to praise when we talk about when we were born again. But if it becomes so common that we say, well, I was saved then and so on and so forth. If you've never moved past, yes, thank God you were born again, but how come your life doesn't show it? Just wondering. How come you're so easy to live like the devil all week, show up and sing in a choir on Sunday? I, was actually, I actually served with a minister who was an associate pastor at the church that Bill Clinton attended while he sat in the choir and sang every Sunday. And they never said a single word. And this was at the height of his popularity back before he became president. But he is saved. Get it? So somehow... When you remove and you decon, uh, unhitch sanctification from justification, sanctification is the proof of life. If there's no proof of life, then you are literally dead. And so what I've been learning in a magnificent way is the idea of walking with Jesus doesn't end with just I got saved. Walking with Jesus is I... Want him more every day. And I want less of me every day. I have a new resolution in my soul. Sanctification brings that about. Rindy and I know a dear sweet lady named Sadie Carr. She's 94 years old. Sadie's dying. She's 94 years old. She's been in the bonus years for a long time. But Sadie is one of the most godliest women I've ever known. Is she perfect? No, but don't go contaminating the testimony of a human being. We are being sanctified for a reason. She's not able to swallow, so whatever valve is in there in the swallowing parts is not working right. So she's dehydrating. As long as as they would give her IVs, she would be able to go further, but... She's very frail. You can see every bone in her body. And her son, who's a pastor, a dairy farmer turned pastor, um, he's, he sent me a picture of her. And there she was. He says every night for an hour, she gets up, goes to a chair, takes open her Bible on her lap and prays for an hour. And he said she's done this for years. So here she is in her last, her last days. She's resolved. And he said uh, her favorite hymn is, I am resolved. And it made me think about it. Because, I mean, you know, I woke up whistling that this morning. And I wanted to read you the words. And I want us to, to address where we should be as we go in to this problem statement. Now, this is the problem we've been talking about for 13 weeks. We all know it by heart. And by now we should. Thankfully, I heard it from one man today. He's listening. The, fa- the problem is, is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand 
and apply the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness in their everyday life. I got saved, doesn't matter how I live. The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. That's not in keeping with someone who's been totally resurrected from death to life. So I'm going to read to you Sadie's favorite hymn. And try to resist not singing it, because I know that you'll know the tune. Because when I'm reading the words, I'll have the tune. I am resolved no longer to linger in this world. Charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to Him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to Thee. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one, He is the just one, He hath the words of life. I will hasten to Him, hasten So glad and free. Jesus greatest, highest. I will come to thee. Who all remembers this? Anybody remember this hymn? Nobody remembers this hymn? Come on. I am resolved to follow the Savior. Faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith. Do what he willeth. He is the living way. I am resolved to enter the kingdom. Leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me. Foes may beset me. Still I will enter in. I will hasten to him. Hasten so glad and free. So glad and free it says. Jesus greatest highest. I will come to thee. I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay. Taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. I will hasten to Him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to Thee. I like it because it has... Literally, five resolves. Resolve to not linger in this world. Resolve to go to the Savior. Resolve to follow the Savior once you get there. Resolve to enter the kingdom. And then resolve to take others with you when you go. This, this problem that we have is... Not resolved at all. There's no resolution in it. Except self. Spiritual narcissism. So we're going to be looking today. At this issue. As it relates in Romans. We started in Romans 6. We're now going into Romans 8. We're midway through chapter 8. And there's the issue of suffering. So. The sanctifying work of suffering. And today, even the creation suffers from Adam's fall. Annie said she's limping around today because she had to pull weeds. 
weeds are a result of the fall. Okay. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse uh, 19. But it says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. One, two, three, four, five, six. Five, see, one, two, three, four, five, six times in these verses we see the word hope. But we see suffering. But we see hope. Let's pray. Father, show us the connection between suffering and hope. And let us understand how this is all to do with you sanctifying us in this world. God, give us a clear understanding of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Sadie is suffering. Slowly. We all have to go one way or another. It's inevitable. And I think as we read through these passages and we see the word hope connected with the inevitable, we have an eager expectation for that day. Why would we not want to go on as quickly as we could? We get comfortable here. But suffering is a really big part of what we encounter here. Last week we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Now, there's no secret that Peter wrote under the horrific rule of Nero and saw what the Christians had to go through in the matter of persecution, things that were horrifically bad. And he said, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. 
And then he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And so we're on this side of the cross, or I mean, well, they were too. But so after, on this many years later, I should say, okay, 2,000 or so. And we look at their suffering. Now, if we would have, if we were, say, living in uh, parts of India or Syria or, or even communist China or wherever, we would read this very differently. Very differently, right? But really, when we come about sufferings here where we live, and, and by His grace, and God's grace has allowed us to live this way, we have health issues that make us suffer, financial issues that make us suffer, sometimes, and an and even more encroaching government restriction that, let's admit, it's more of an annoyance than it is a suffering. And the only reason that we suffer from it is because we remember when it didn't used to be that way. But we have a hard time relating to, to, to exactly the, the tenor and tone that Peter was referring to here. But suffering is a major part of the Christian life. Now you can have it in despairing family dramas when you have a family issue that you cannot fix and only God can do it. When you... You, I, you should, if you're paying attention as, as, a, as a believer in Jesus, you should feel that dark oppression that our culture is emanating right now. The degradation and the decay and the blaspheming of God's name. You should sense that. And it should be a level of suffering in your soul. But... Persecution we do not know about. And I'm not saying we won't ever. Because as things progress, that's the only place left to go. So I like what Stephen Lawson said, and I, remember, I remind, reminded you last week. The Christian life is not a subtraction of suffering, but the addition of grace to go through suffering. So if you're not suffering today, you will be. In one way or another, a loss of a family member... Or any other kind of thing that can come up. You will find that. Now what's endemic to American culture. Is generally has to do with the soul right now. The mind and the soul. People, many people suffer today. Of anxieties and depressions. And they're not always unbelievers. Many Christians do. I'm no stranger to depression or anxiety. And when I think of it. I understand that this body and this nature is fallen, as we shall soon see. But I have a hope that doesn't fade. And I have a resolve that doesn't give way. So to, to, to introduce today's passages, we're going to be talking about the creation. Now, Paul immediately goes into this and addresses this suffering of the creation as an, as an example of the reality of suffering in this world. Robert Mounts, in his commentary on Romans, he wrote a very splendid insight, and and I'm going to read it before we get into the verses. The creation itself is pictured as eagerly awaiting that time when the glorious future of the sons of God is realized. J.B. Phillips has a version. You might have seen it on some of your Bible apps. Maybe uh, Bible Gateway or the Blue Letter Bible has a J.B. Phillips version. But, uh, and, and it's really a, kind of a Greek uh, uh, paraphrase. 
J.B. Phillips translates this verse in verse 19 for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, this is what uh, J.B. Phillips, he says, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. That, that's kind of how he grabs the, uh, the Greek pic- picture there. So as it says in verse 19, again, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's in a view of waiting on tiptoe with the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. That's, that's us being fully and finally redeemed in the sense we get a brand new resurrected body, which I always seem to forget about when I'm thinking about heaven. I really do. I don't often think about it. I guess because mine hurts a lot these days. And, you know, it's always aching in new places and things of that nature. And I'm like, well, you know, to be in heaven is to just lose this thing. But actually, the full culmination of, of redemption is getting a glorified body. It's part of the, it's the purchased possession mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 or 2 in there. One, thanks. So we get that back. Hair and all. And so we, the, the, the creation, now I want you to understand, this, this is where this gets really interesting. The earnest expectation of the creation, so the creation, the creation eagerly waits. And as I think about that, I'm like, so the earth and stuff is, and the answer is yeah, it is. I bet the climate alarmists don't think about that. Very much. Okay, they think we don't love the earth. Well, literally, little, little do they know. So, the earnest expectation. So, the word, and this is fun. I, I got to say this Greek word. This is a fun one. Okay. Apo karadokia. You could name a puppy that. Okay. Apo karadokia. Obviously, it's a compound Greek word. It's what we get the word earnest expectation. It kind of goes together. And it's made up of kara, meaning head, and dekomine means to take, or maybe originally it meant to stretch, but it's talking about stretching the head forward or something. I'm trying to figure that out. Stretching the head forward. And, and what's unusual about this word is there are no instances of this term except in Christian literature. Okay? So this verb is very rare. And it's hardly ever found prior to 200 B.C. And it means to await calmly or tensely. So when we lean forward in expectation, uh, maybe, you've, uh, maybe it's been at Christmas or something, you're a little kid, <laughs> and you're just expecting this, this gift, you've just been waiting on it, you're pretty sure it's right there, and you're just, you're just you're leaning forward and you're waiting, you're just... So full of, and that's what apparently the creation is doing. It's doing. It's eagerly waiting. And, and this same word, by the way, I want to turn to, uh, it, only, it only occurs twice in the New Testament, by the way, here. And then in Philippians. It occurs in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. And it says, uh, 
According, so Paul writes, for I know, in verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then he writes in verse 20, according to my apokaradokia, my earnest expectation and hope, which in the Greek is help, elpis, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And this was his earnest expectation, his completion of his race, that Christ would be exalted. That was his earnest expectation. So the, the, this word then literally has this idea of on the edge of your seat, or as J.B. Phillips said, the tiptoes, waiting and straining, stretching the neck forward, the head forward to see what's coming, because you know it is, right? As we'll soon see in a minute. You read on down, by the way, in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected and in hope, Because of verse 21, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. There you go. When you guys are finished, I'm finished. (laughs) The creation waits. And and i got to say, this is a mysterious thing to me to understand. And don't say if you're here, well, I fully understand it. I don't think you do. So, the unwilling subjection then. The creation was subjected. To futility, or let's look, how about the word frustration? Subjected to frustration, not willingly, against its will. How about that? But because of Him, that would be God who subjected it in hope. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, as we'll see in a second. But because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So that's why it's on tiptoe straining forward to say even I know. Even the creation knows that this thing is winding down to a culmination. So in any, you might even could say it's winding up. Okay. God, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back and everything will be reset. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Why does the creation groan? Well, he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed Be the ground for your sake. You get it? Right there. Cursed be the ground. First victim of the fall. The creation. First victim. Thorns and thistles and things like that. Shouldn't be here. Sometimes you hear this phrase too many times. Well, you know, it's just as normal as death and taxes. Death is not normal. You got to remember that. Paul Washer, I was listening to a sermon of his this week, and he brought that up. Death is not normal. We get used to it, but death is not normal. Maybe that's why the body hangs on so hard, so tightly to life, even when it is losing all of its faculties. It's meant to live, 
And, and maybe that's, I mean, boy, when you start, of course, you all know probably about the fentanyl crisis in the nation and all of that and what drugs do and seeing people. And, and from what I understand, there's the people, people in Los Angeles and every other place where they have this fentanyl thing. People are on the, I watched, they're laying on the street, but they're not entirely passed out because they're kind of doing this zombie crawl thing. They're, they're, they're alive and they're awake, but they're not. What, I, don't, I don't understand it, but it's literally them just pulling themselves along. The body is not meant. It's, it's abnormal. It's, it's not right. It's not meant to be that way. So the spiritual death of the soul, when, they, when this death spread to all men, this sin, that, the original sin that Adam committed, made this fall happen, and the earth was the first, or the creation, I should say, was the first victim of it. And he says, the next thing, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your, you're going to have to work hard to feed yourself. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face, You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's not normal. That's a consequence. And we forget about that. So Jesus, as we're going to talk, well, I just have a lot. So um, verse 23 Look, look here, and, and there's a lot to develop, and I don't have a whole lot of time. So, the creation was subjected in hope. God didn't just leave it there. Because the creation itself, in verse 21, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It, too, will be cleansed and remade. Fire and then remade. Brand new, restored to its original, untainted kind. But it groans. It groans within itself. But there's coming a day when there's going to be a liberty happen. Look at verse 23. The longed for hope. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit. The first fruits. When you become a Christian, as remember how we were talking in the beginning? If you've truly been saved, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You have a new resident living within you you have a a trajectory now that is set up and while it may appear that the christian life is kind of like this you know i'm using a straight line the christian life because of the resident occupation of the holy spirit is like this always up maybe you have dips and highs and lows but you're still going up Because you're being transformed. You're being conformed to the image of His Son. The first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, 
We have the Holy Spirit, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. And notice this word, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And that's where I have to remember, oh yeah, I get a new body. And Rindy gets a new body. And even Jesse, she gets a, a new body. And Brian, thank the Lord, he gets a new body. <laughs> okay? And we won't even recognize JT. So, you know, but everybody gets remade. And the funny thing is, and the thing that I, and, and I can't go past this, but you're still you, you know? You're you. They recognized Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think he showed up with a hello, my name is Moses sticker. Okay. They, they recognized Elijah. And he did not either have a little sticker, hello, my name is Elijah. Oh, I heard a lot about you guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Would you like a stool? Sit around. We have hot dogs. S'more. They knew who they were. They were recognizable. They, were, they didn't just look like two clouds. We are distinct and unique and made in God's image. And He knows us one by one, His children. And we get a brand new body. Now, if you have perfect health, you probably don't think about that very much. But as your body begins to be not so perfect, yeah, you think about that. So salvation isn't just being filled with the Holy Spirit and then dying one day going to heaven. It's... A total transformation. I get a heavenly body. A celestial body. One that can do weird stuff. But really would be normal things when you look at it right. As it should be. It's incredible. Ah, The redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, Paul writes. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it. And notice he throws in this last word at the end. Perseverance. Are you struggling? Are you suffering? Persevere. There's something good coming. Something really good coming. Uh, Again, Robert Mounts writes, Currently, however... The entire universe is in travail, as if it were giving birth. As in childbirth, the pain is not meaningless, but carries with it the hope of new life for all creation. Likewise, we ourselves are inwardly groaning as we wait for the final phase of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Christians are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, who have the Spirit as a foretaste of the future, which is why the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee. Earnest, yes, depending on your your King James or New King James, whatever. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship then is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you wait eagerly, I might ask? Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things 
to himself. So that song we wrote, I am resolved to go to the Savior. And it says, I will hasten to him. Hasten so glad and free. Why does, why do they, why does he start talking about hasten for? Because he's, I'm hurrying. I want to get there. I want to hasten. Hasten ye to the... No, just hasten. You're hurrying. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's why I want to caution everybody here. I myself struggle with this a great deal. So I can speak from one who also suffers with this. (sighs) Try to resist this pull right now in our political climate to begin to identify as a Christian nationalist. Try to resist that. You are a citizen of heaven. Yes, you are wandering through right now. You should do your best to do good. But don't forget where you belong. Don't forget what's normal for you. Heard a story about a watchmaker in the Union Army. And it, news got out that the man was a watchmaker. So all of the troops around him began to bring him their watches for him to fix them while they were in uh, uh, camp and garrison, if you will. And he got so occupied with fixing watches that when it came time to go to the battle line, he was completely astonished. And he objected. He had all these watches to finish. Till one of the commanding officers reminded him that he was a soldier in the Union Army. Not there to be a watchmaker. You, if you know Christ, are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, you're a parent maybe. Perhaps you're a sibling. Perhaps you're just you. But you've been saved by grace. You've been given the Holy Spirit of God. I don't care what you do for a living. Wherever God has you. But you are headed towards that heavenly shore. And you have a resolve, or you should, to hasten towards Him. You should be concerned with political issues. Because especially when it's about right and wrong and truth or injustice or whatever. But don't. Get bogged down so far that you forget who you belong to and where you're going. I want to read these last verses and I'll approach this last slide. Verse 24, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? I think that's self-explanatory. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We need to maintain the course of the pursuit of the high calling of God in our life. And anything that distracts from that, you need to 86 that out of your life. Richard Barcellus. In which case, I have to get this book and show you this. This is crazy. Okay, this is me having a Mickey moment. Sorry. Okay. This is the book that I have, and it almost completely perfectly matches Pam's blouse. Okay. I just have to say that if you put it up there, it almost goes away. It's just remarkable to me. Anyway, (laughs) but Richard Barcellus writes 
It's called Getting the Garden Right, and it goes from, from, from the book of Genesis and the creation order all the way to the end in Revelation. That's what he's writing about here. But he says, we have seen that the end of the Bible okay, is like the beginning, but much better. God brings creation to a glorious goal, a new heaven and a new earth that will never be tainted by sin. What God originally intended for the earth comes to fruition when all history is brought to its apex, its climax, at Christ's second coming. Once the judgment dust is cleared, and I like how he said that, once the judgment dust is cleared, there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. The whole earth will be special, will be a special dwelling place of God among men. It will be a temple in which man communes with God. This is the eternal state, the consummated state, the rest of God. That is our hope. And, and do you press in for it? Because I do. I can't wait. I don't know how it's going to happen. So long as the bottom comes suddenly. But just, I am ready. I want to go there. I want to hasten. Hurry. Get her done. You know, let's go. How could you not want that? But, caution you there too. You have a, you have a, a job to fulfill, to fulfill. I have a job to fulfill. I want to finish well done. Not, and I know I won't because God is sovereign and the power He keeps, but somehow I would hate to quit early because I got discouraged and just go on. I want to finish, and that's my goal. I want to finish well, but I want to know Him more. If you're here, do you know Christ like that? So when someone says, have you been saved? If all it is is just an an empty, cliched question, have you been saved? You got saved. Well, is there proof of life? Richard Owen Roberts, when he was a minister at the Congregational Church in Oregon, actually was somewhere outside of Portland, a very wealthy church, church person invited him over to his home. And he sat down. He was, he was the owner of a big company there. They built ships and stuff. And he sat down in the living room. And this man really appreciated the church. And he wanted to join the church. And Richard, in his Richard Owen Roberts way, younger in those days, said, well, you see, sir, we have a, a uh, criteria that one has to meet in our church in order to join it. And the first thing is, can the candidate who wishes to join the church provide credible evidence of regeneration? To which the man got extraordinarily upset. Richard was able to talk to him, shared the gospel with him, thought that was the end of the matter. Was called to this man's house sometime later And the man articulated a genuine conversion experience and served faithfully in that church for the rest of the time Richard was there. Can you provide credible evidence of regeneration? Or do you just have a one-liner? I got saved back then. You know, I've done that. I got to tell you, I'd met the Jesus I met. You can't talk to him about him like that. You just can't. You just can't. That's I know you just can't. I'm going to ask JT to come.
What have you done with Christ? If suffering is, is absolute and guaranteed, who do you go through it with? And for you, what is the final outcome about? I know mine. It's preparing me for the hope of glory. Apo, Kara, Dokima. My earnest expectation. Do you have that? JT's going to play. The altar is open. If you need to know Christ, you'll know that. And I would just challenge you. Just cry out to Him. You'll know what to do if He's calling you. And Christian, if you need to offload some stuff, the altar is open.